You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, take my words now and make them yours, that we might evermore and only praise and worship Thee, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, Proverbs 16:18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You've probably experienced this in your own life. You've probably said this to a good friend. Just when you feel like you have it all together, just when you feel like you can do it, it all falls apart. That's what we see in our passage today. In the Gospel reading, Jesus reminds us in Luke chapter 14 not to think too highly of ourselves and not to be too self-focused. And the reason for this is because our selfishness, our pride, only leads to shame, only leads to our own destruction. In Luke, in Luke chapter 14, we're presented with two dinner parties. In the first party, we're told how to think, not to think too highly of ourselves, because that is a sure recipe for disaster, a sure recipe for public shame. In the second dinner party, we're We're told how our selfishness extends into every area of our life. Let's take a closer look at these two scenes. In verse 1 we learn that Jesus is eating at the house of a Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees in fact. And as the Pharisees is their want, they're watching Jesus very closely to see if they can trap him and accuse him of doing wrongdoing. And by this time in Luke's biography of Jesus, he's been preaching against the Pharisees for some time now. In chapter 11, he rebukes the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. In verse 43, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. In other words, woe to you, Pharisees, for you love to be seen by people. So it's no wonder that the Pharisees are a little suspicious of Jesus at this dinner party, keeping their eye closely on him. But in verse 7 we're told that Jesus is watching the Pharisees just as closely. And he notices that as they come to this dinner party, they're taking the seats of highest honour. They're trying to get the best seat at the party, the seat that will give them the biggest boost to their social capital. And on seeing this kind of comical display of pride, Jesus recognizes this as an opportunity to teach the Pharisees a thing or two, to put a mirror up to their performance. Now you'd think he'd go off on a, on a tyrant. Woe to you Pharisees, you proud and foolish people. That's what we'd expect, right? But that's not what happens. Their pride is clearly on display Come on, Jesus, give them that rebuke that they need. But no, Jesus' rebuke is a little bit subtler this time, almost backhanded. Jesus says the trick is not to seek your own honour by choosing the best seat at the party, lest you would be humiliated by the hosts asking you to move to the back. Rather, you should sit in the place of least honour, the lowest place, so that the host might come and honour you in front of everyone. That seems a bit strange. This seems a bit counterintuitive to everything else that Jesus has been teaching. Hasn't he just been condemning these Pharisees for how they love 
honour and praise from others, how they love to put on a show. This dinner party is a prime example of that. Everyone's rushing to the seat of honour, climbing the social ladder, worming their way up. But it seems like Jesus is saying that honour is a good thing. And here's the blueprint, here's the trick to getting the most honour at a dinner party. There's got to be more to this story than meets the eye. This must be more than just Jesus' lesson on social etiquette. It can't just be his reflections on how to win friends and influence people. The key to unlocking the mystery of this passage is verse 7. We read that this passage is a parable. Jesus is using this everyday occurrence, this normal mundane dinner party, as a metaphor for how to enter and live well in the, in the kingdom of God. And the moral of this metaphor culminates in verse 11 where Jesus says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The problem being addressed here is that we presume that we are worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this was the problem of the Pharisees. They assumed that if they did all the right things, kept all the right laws, tithed a tenth of everything they had, went to temple every week, that they would be worthy of honour, worthy of entrance into God's kingdom. They were fixated on maintaining this outward appearance, so much so that they neglected their spiritual health and they neglected the God that they worshipped. So Jesus turns the table on them and, and tells them that life in the kingdom is not a ruthless rat race where dog eats dog and where everyone is looking out for them and theirs. Life in the kingdom, life under God, is characterized by humility, where the proud are humbled and the humbled are praised. This echoes what Jesus says elsewhere in the New Testament. On one occasion when he's teaching the disciples about how to be the greatest in the kingdom, he says, whoever is least among you is the greatest. There's an upside-down nature to the kingdom of God. We heard this at the beginning of our series in 1 Corinthians, that God chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. So is, just, is Jesus just saying that we should all just rush to the place of least importance? Next week we should all sit up the back so we can show how humble we are in listening to the sermon, how well we, we've taken the word of God. Do you, hear the, do you hear the irony in that? This passage is not so much about physical seating arrangements. It's about the human heart. The human heart that loves to think of itself more highly than it ought. That loves to receive praise and honour. Jesus is not just giving worldly advice. He's teaching us about how to be genuinely humble. Reminding us that the truly humble person will end up where they ought to be and will receive honour in the end. Well, that's the first dinner party. At the second dinner party in verses 12 to 14, there's a similar theme going on. This section is also about the right conduct at parties, but in this instance, it's about who should you invite to your dinner party. Jesus says, don't invite your friends, don't invite your relatives or your rich neighbours, in case they just invite you in return, and you're rewarded for your considerate gesture. Rather, you should invite the poor and the needy, the, the crippled and the lame and the blind, 
And by doing this, you will receive your reward in heaven, not in this life, but at the resurrection of the just. Again, Jesus is not just giving practical advice about proper social etiquette here, as though you shouldn't have any friends. Don't, don't invite your friends, you don't need friends. This is not what Jesus is talking about. It's not Jesus the introvert here saying, you know, stay inside by yourself, be quiet. Please don't call your mother or your children and say that they don't have to come to Thanksgiving this, this year because Jesus said, don't invite your friends or family. That's not what this is talking about. The focus again is on the heart, highlighting our motivations and intentions. Jesus is putting a mirror up to these Pharisees. Notice how Jesus points to the reward for our actions. If we just invite the people who are impressive and important, then our reward will be in this life and we'll be invited to impressive and important parties. But if we invite the down and outs, the outcasts, it won't be very profitable for us in this life. It'll actually be really hard and time-consuming. But we will be rewarded in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. At first glance, these stories seem fairly unrelated. The first story is about pride and humility and the second is about seeking repayment for deeds. However, these verses come in the context of Jesus teaching about who can enter the kingdom of God. In chapter 13, Jesus warns that the entrance to heaven is through a narrow door. Many will try to enter and not be able to. They will stand knocking at the door. And listen to what Jesus says in verses 27 to 29 of chapter 13. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Again, there's that echo of first and last, low and high, humble and proud. What Jesus is saying is that The kingdom of God does not work the same way as the kingdom of this world. It's not a merit-based system. There's no social ladder that you can climb. You can't enter by being good enough, by doing the right things, by going to the right church, by being an usher or an acolyte or on the vestry or in this pulpit. You cannot buy, you cannot earn, you cannot work your way into the kingdom of God. It's not a reward for the good things that you've done, for being a good person. Salvation is given, not earned. It's a gift, not a a reward for things done. This is what we see in these two parties. The host is the one who exalts the people. And invitations are given out to those who don't deserve it. How then can I be saved, you may ask? Jesus explains in Mark Chapter 2, verse 17, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You can only be saved when you recognize your helpless state. It's only when you realize that you are not God, that you're not in control, 
that it's only then that you can grasp hold of the cross and be saved. This is what the Bible calls repentance, when you realize that you don't deserve that place of honor, when you realize that you've done wrong, you're deserving of God's punishment, and that you're sorry for your actions, that you turn away from them and you turn to God and ask for His forgiveness. And something that these two parties show us is that we all have a practical theology. You might not think of yourself as much of a theologian, but you actually are. And what I mean by having a practical theology is that our actions often betray what we believe, or portray, in fact. Our actions, they reveal what we think and what we believe. We often say this around here in a different way. We say, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. That is, our actions, our our hearts are so bound by our selfish desires that they just flow out into what we do. So we're all like these Pharisees, seeking the praise and honour of others, or desiring to be invited to the greatest dinner, the greatest parties, hosted by the most important people in all of Birmingham. How often I fall into this same trap? How often do I seek self-justification through the approval of others, through people coming to my parties. I want to be honoured. I want to be praised. My heart loves this world far too much. It's because I have a sin problem. But the bad news is that I'm not the only one. All of humanity shares in this sin problem. It's human nature to build ourselves up, to puff ourselves up, to think that we're more highly than we are think we're bigger and stronger than we actually are. It's our nature to think that we are in control, to put ourselves in the place of God, to think, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul. This is what we see in Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say that? What if he was wrong? How, how does he know what's best for me? He doesn't really know what's going on. This is pride and selfishness which separates us and alienates us from God. It's an attitude of rebellion and disobedience that leaves no place for God's rule over our lives. This is what the Bible calls sin. When we turn away from God and put ourselves in His place, when we think that we are in control, when we know better than God, the problem is that we, we don't. You just have to look at the state of this world to see what happens when humans are in charge. But sin isn't just a bad idea. It's deadly. The Bible says that the punishment for our rebellion is death and that everyone is guilty of it. But it's our nature to think that I'm going to be okay. I'm one of the good ones. I'm not as bad as him. It's, it's our nature to put ourselves higher than others. It's our nature to think that someone else is the problem, to point the, th- the point the finger at someone else as the bad guy. It's the woman you gave me. It's the serpent. He tricked me. Pride thinks I'm okay, even when the world is going to hell in a handbag. Well, the good news is that God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. What is the good news in this passage? That God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. The good news is that Jesus 
humbled himself and came to us even though he was most glorious. That we are the ones not deserving of the invitation, but we get it through Jesus' death and resurrection. We see this in the life and death of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Humility and repentance is not just the beginning of the Christian life, though. It's the pattern of the Christian life. As J.I. Packer puts it, the Christian life is one of downward growth. He says what we have to realise is that we grow up into Christ by growing down into lowliness. Christians, we might say, grow greater by getting smaller. So our attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ. But I don't want to just give you good advice as though you ta- what your takeaway from this sermon would be that I have to be more repentant. That is not the good, that's not the gospel of this passage. The gospel is that it is only Jesus who was humble enough to come down from heaven that you might be saved. It's only through Jesus that we might have life. And it's only through belief in him that we can be exalted and brought into heaven. That is the good news. There's no sense of being humble enough. There's no sense of being proud enough. There's not anything you can do to work your way into the kingdom. So don't just rush to the back seat, but put your faith in Jesus. Make yourself lowly. Realize who you are in light of God, that he is the only one that can save you. Be careful, Jesus says. Don't think too highly of yourself, lest you be put to shame but humble yourself so that you might be exalted. This is not just good social advice, this is the way of salvation. So what does this mean for your life? Where are you being selfish and self-seeking, putting yourself before others? Are you racing for the place of honour in your work, in your home, in your school? Are you desiring to be seen and recognised, praised for how good you are? Are you seeking rewards for your hard labour? Only doing things that people will repay you for in kind? Are you only inviting the socially acceptable into your kingdom? Or are you presuming on the Lord's favour, thinking that you are good enough for God? Humble yourselves therefore before the Lord, and he will exalt you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not consider quality with yourself something to be grasped, but through your Son you came down and took on the form of humankind that we might be saved and that you might take us into heaven with you. Help us to repent of our sins and to seek first your kingdom that in time we might be exalted and glorified. 
We ask all these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.